This episode of Scandal Water contains adult themes and descriptions of violence. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Hi, Ashley. Hello, Candy. It's fun to record and to see your face a different way. Normally, we're across the table from each other. Today, I know. We're, we're doing it via Zoom, so that's fun. Mm-hmm. What's also fun is the topic we're going to talk about today. I know, and it gets to be a surprise this time. I'm excited. I'm, yeah, we don't get to do that very often, but this one mm-hmm. is a surprise, and I'm pumped about it because this one has been on my back burner, and Ashley's as well, I know, for something like 14 months. Do you know so- what it is? No. Okay, guys, just a reminder, our theme for October, we wanted to do something in the theme of the month, but you know, not necessarily straight out scary. So our theme is pulling back the curtains, which means that we're just kind of going behind the scenes of different stories that could be mysterious, could be a little creepy. And this is a callback to a very popular episode from June of last year. The Jaws? Yes. Do you Uh remember what we were going to come back to? You had said you were going to come back and do something called like After the Bite? Yes. I think we will call this After Bite. And oh, Astrobite. my friend Christine gave me this book, which I believe I've shown you guys before. It's Behind the Horror, True Stories That Inspired Horror Movies. No, I don't think you have, or at least I don't remember it. I did pull some information from this book when we were talking about the monologue scene that Quint gives that's, you know, oh. related to the USS Indianapolis. Okay, I also okay, okay. Some great information when we were talking about how Quint's character, the shark hunter type persona was You're based right. And named Frank Mundus. Well, this book also had a fascinating story about the shark attacks of 1916 that actually mm. inspired the plot of Jaws. Now, Peter Benchley, to be fair, he came back in an interview with New Yorker in 2001, I believe, and he said, no, it didn't. No, it didn't inspire my book. But everybody, every single source I saw said that it definitely inspired the movie, if not the book. And a lot of the authors would like lay out all the parallels between this particular story and what occurs in the book and movie. And they're like, mm, yeah, it did. <laughs> he didn't want to admit that it did. What's it, what does it matter? I'm not sure, but I, I did want to honor that, that he did yeah. say, you know, yeah. I want to make sure that I mentioned that, but this is fascinating. It's a little, a little disturbing, Aww. but it's so interesting and it's historical. Okay. So that's what we're talking about today. We're going to be pulling back the curtain and we're going to talk about the Jersey Shore shark attacks of 1916. And you guys are going to be able to see and hear, I think, the parallels. I think it's going to be obvious as we talk about some of the things that occurred, how this could have been inspirational to somebody who was trying to create this movie. That's our topic. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Let's 
dive in. Okay. Oh, let's dive in. Ha ha ha. <laughs> so again, the book is a key source, but of course I also pulled multiple articles, everything from Smithsonian to National Geographic to some sources from the original 1916 articles. So you can check all of that out on our show notes. I do want to start out by saying this was one of those cases where time and time again, I would see conflicting information. These three articles would say somebody was 10 years old and these two would say he was 12 or I mean just a lots of different facts that were a little off so just bear that in mind I'll try to kind of cue that when it happens but I think that's something we learned during our Maureen Dallas Watkins episode is newspapers were more like eh, this is kind of what happened <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then this is really what happened right and who you know who after what almost a hundred years. Who even uh-huh. knows? Now? Right. Well, the story actually starts with a man named Charles Van Sant, who everybody called Van because of his last name. He was 25 years old, tall, dark, and handsome, well-educated. His dad was a Philadelphia businessman. So Van came from, you know, this good family, well-to-do family. And after he graduated from college at the University of Pennsylvania, he took a job at a brokerage firm. So he was doing well for himself too. But on this particular week, weekend, which was the July 4th weekend, Van and his family decided they were going to celebrate by going to a beach resort. Now, this was something I found fascinating, Ashley. Like, Mm -hmm. have you ever stopped to think about, you know, that idea of a beach holiday when that started? Mm -mm, No. When did it start? Well, I just thought it was forever. (laughs) I was like this. Everybody's just always wanted to go to the beach. I found out at the time that this time frame that we're talking about around 1916, it was actually kind of a relatively new thing to go to the beach or to stay at the beach for a, a beach holiday, if you will. Because I guess a long time ago, people were either afraid of the ocean or it was just kind of this natural occurrence and then for a while it it became the place where you would go if you were trying to heal from some kind of a sickness or if you had yeah in the early 1900s it well I should also say it became more of a beach holiday thing in Europe first and then it had to slowly spread so in America in 1916 it had only probably been a thing for a couple of decades to go to the beach for fun so have you seen I'm I'm sorry I'm interrupt you this reminded me have you seen that meme that's circulating where it says Edward of course your wife feels better when she goes to the seaside your house is full of asbestos you get her out of the house (laughs) and you know the Edwardian Victoria in time she goes to the she goes to the seaside and she gets better it's like it's full of mercury and asbestos mesothelioma like you might be entitled oh to compensation edward so it's just very funny <laughs> yeah funny not funny funny not of. funny yeah <laughs> yeah but anyway so they are going to the beach for the fourth of july holiday they are staying at a nice resort that is actually called beach haven and it's a popular resort island off the new jersey shore It's actually Saturday, July 1st, 1916, that Van and his family take an express train to go to Beach Haven. And when they get there around five o'clock, Van decides he's got time before dinner. He would like to go get in the ocean. And so his sister Louise goes along with him and they stop along the boardwalk, go into a bathhouse where Van can change into a swimsuit and they go on down to the beach area. Now, somewhere along the way, it sounded like it was when they were actually on the beach itself, a little Chesapeake Bay retreat. Retriever started following Van, Mm. and Van 
loved having this little dog with him. Everybody, you know, who saw them said that he was playing with the dog. And then when he went into the water, you know, he was playing with the, with the dog at the shoreline. And as he would swim out farther, he was calling to the dog, trying to get it to follow him. So he was, it was really kind of a thing that he was playing with this dog. As he goes deeper into the ocean, at some point, Van is about chest deep. And it was about that time that a few people who are on the shoreline see a dark object gliding under the water near him and a black fin. And they start yelling at these few people to try to warn him. But the people who are witnessing this seem to believe, you know, he was very into playing with the dog. He was calling to the dog. He didn't seem to understand the warning. Other people thought that Van wasn't actually calling to the dog. Like, like, like after a while, like he might've actually been calling for help and people thought he was still playing with the dog at that point. Yeah. But regardless, at some point, everybody agreed Van let out this really piercing scream. And he's, I know, and he started frantically swimming toward the shore. But when he was about 50 yards away, he began to shriek and thrash around wildly. And then they saw this big pool of blood spread around him, this kind of this red water around him. So the lifeguard was a man named Alexander Ott, who actually happened to be a member of the American Olympic swim team. And so he he plunged into the water to do, you know, to go after and try to save this man. And he started pulling Van out by his upper body. But when he got to, you know, a place where the water was only about waist deep, the- there was no lower oh, body. Well, no, the shark was still attacked. <gasps> oh! Leg. Oh! I know. I know. So two local men, John Everton and Sheridan Taylor, they jumped in to help Alexander pull Van's body. And this shark is still hanging onto him until the shark's belly reaches the sand. When it gets shallow enough, it hits the sand. And that's finally what made it release its grip and it swam away. But the men who pulled him ashore could tell his injuries were really, really catastrophic. Yeah, it was bad. According to the book, quote, Charles Van Sant's left thigh had been stripped to the bone and there was another large laceration on his right. And he was also, of course, bleeding really heavily. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the lifeguard used a bathing suit to make a tourniquet to try to control the blood loss. And they took Van into the this Ingleside Hotel, the nearest hotel, and doctors there of course you know they're I think they like laid him across maybe a reception desk or something and they're working to save his life now another conflicting point some sources said that his father was one of the doctors working on van but as I the book had said he was a businessman so not sure regardless there were a couple of doctors working together and they couldn't save him Mm, poor baby what happened to the dog the dog was okay okay good the dog was okay but charles van sant bled to death he passed away before 7 p.m that night and according to the book it was the first recorded fatality by shark attack in the history of the eastern united states wow yeah by the way, I'm going to pause for a second. I should have said this at the top, but um, I'll go ahead and tell our listeners because you might be interested. I have a few pictures I'm going to show because we are doing this via Zoom. Those of you listening you know, through podcasts, it's all audio. Great. But if you want to go to our YouTube site, Scandal Water Podcast, our YouTube channel and watch this, you'll see us as we're talking to each other. And you'll also see the pictures when I show them partway through. So yeah, they're just... going to get to see my horrified expression. <laughs> yes. That's yes. what I'm noticing. Like, oh dear, I look horrified. And I wish I could say it's going to get better, but 
it it is I not no no you did this to me all through september too sorry <laughs> it's okay but 14 months later i mean i needed yeah. to we needed yeah, you to got go a follow-up yeah yeah well despite this tragedy the beaches remained open robert angle who owned the angleside hotel did put up a net about 300 feet from the shoreline but most of the other nearby beaches didn't do anything. So five days later on July 6th, it was another really hot day. I don't think I've said that. This happened to be like a heat wave time of year for them back in 1916 in this area around, you know, Philadelphia and New Jersey. So that was another thing that was driving people to the beach. the water. Yeah. In addition to the fact that it was the 4th of July weekend and it was mm -hmm. like, you know, holiday weekend, let's go to the beach. It was swelteringly hot. So lots of people were going for that reason as well. So on July 6th, another hot day, two men who worked at the Hotel Essex and Sussex, which is 45 miles north of Beach Haven, where Van had been attacked. And okay. so these two men we're talking about here were 27-year-old Charles Bruder, who worked as a bellhop, and his friend Henry Nolan, who was an elevator operator. It's their lunch break. They're going to go take a quick dip. You know, this will be fun. They walk outside, two guys, they see all the pretty ladies swimming in the crowded area that's reserved for the hotel guests. Mm -hmm. And Henry made a joke about joining them. Charles laughs and he tells Henry, no, you know, you can't do that. You've got to stay in the employee area if you want to keep your job because that was a big thing at this hotel. They had a strict policy that you could not fraternize. You couldn't mingle with the guests. Okay. So they also note in the book that Henry Nolan, the elevator operator, he looked up and he saw one of those guests who was a socialite named Mona Child standing on her private balcony. And she's like watching everything on the beach that's happening through her pair of theater glasses. And he commented, quote, you're right, Charles. Mrs. Childs would have my head for sure if I swam anywhere outside the employee section. Yes. So about 2.15 was the time they finally got down to the water because they had to change into the bathing suits and walk along the boardwalk, all, you know, all those things. When they enter the water, there are a few other friends with them as well. I'm sure they were other employees since it was the employee swimming area. Uh -huh. But most of the, the friends, they didn't last long because it was really pretty cold in the water and there was a strong breeze blowing. So everybody else, you know, the, in his group got out, but Charles stayed. He was a really strong swimmer, very athletic, very fit. He didn't mind the cold. So he decided he was going to actually swim out a little further. And he even went past the lifelines a little bit. No. Mm. But when he was about 130 yards from shore, he started to scream. So a woman saw a red shape in the water and she told the lifeguards, George White and Chris Anderson, she actually... She didn't, couldn't identify what it was. She just saw something red and like in her mind, she couldn't make sense of it. Mm -hmm. So she actually told them she thought that there might've been a canoe out there that had overturned, mm. but they quickly figured out, oh, it's that's, blood. A, yeah, there's a person out there surrounded by blood. Mm. So they jumped in their rescue boat and they are like rowing like crazy to get out to this person. Now I'm going to read one paragraph from the book that explains what occurred, but this is a little graphic. So if you, if you don't want to hear it, maybe just skip forward just like 60 to 90 seconds and you should miss this. It's just one short paragraph that explains what occurred. It says, quote, meanwhile, beachgoers watched in horror 
as the distressed swimmer was flung into the air, blood squirting from the shredded stump of his right leg. When he landed back in the water, the shark lunged in his direction, tearing off his left foot. By the time the lifeguards reached Charles Bruder, he was ghostly white, his face barely bobbing above the water. A shark bit me, bit my legs off, he managed to utter. White that's one of the lifeguards, seized Bruder's arm and pulled him into the boat. It was easier than White had expected. Most of Bruder's lower legs had been bitten off. Moments after they pulled him aboard, Charles Bruder was dead. Oh, I know. I know. It's just absolutely horrifying. The woman who had been out there on the balcony with her theater glasses, Mrs. Mona Childs, she saw the whole thing. I bet she did. Yeah. And she called the hotel switchboard and she demanded that the operator send a message to every hotel along the coast that said, get out of the water. Smart lady. Yeah. And been very forceful. I mean, she was going to be heard. When two local doctors arrived, it was too late for Charles, but the manager of the hotel asked them to treat the dozens of women who had like seen what happened and they were fainting or actually vomiting. Traumatized. Yeah, due to the awfulness of what they'd witnessed. In addition to the horrible damage that had been done to his legs, Charles Bruder also had two other gouges in his body. One was on his thigh and the other was on the right side of his abdomen. And they decided that his death was due to irreversible circulatory shock resulting from the severing of multiple arteries in Mm. his leg. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to pause for a second. That's a lot coming at you fast, but are you already seeing parallels to Jaws? Yes, yes, I am. Especially as far back as with the little dog, even mm-hmm. because the dog yeah. was with the first with the, with the little boy. But yes. oh my gosh, Fourth of July weekend. I mean, yeah, Fourth I mean, of July keeping the beaches open. Yes, yes. I mean, one thing after another. Even when the way, and I mean, I'm sure this is just how it happens with a shark attack. But the way they would talk about being kind of pulled and tugged and i mean Ugh. that reminded me of the opening scene in jaws yeah. oh yeah the, yeah. the girl being pulled yeah. and bobbing Mm-mm. yeah okay brace yourself because we're going back in oh my gosh okay i could do it so on saturday july 8th a team of scientists gathered to try to discuss these disturbing incidents this was something i didn't really realize and we've alluded to it before but i got to see it in a lot more detail in these articles it was a really big deal made about the fact that prior to this time People really believed sharks were very harmless creatures. They did not even think there were such a thing as as man-eating sharks. And so these scientists and these experts who've come together to talk, they're stumped. In fact, a, you know, a lot of them are like, we don't, these are not even sharks. It's a killer whale. It, it's, it's. Why uh, do they think that? Why, why do they think what? That it's not sharks? No. Why did they think that sharks were not harmful? Because honestly, they did not have evidence that they were. I mean, there was even one man, I didn't write this down and include it, but there was one man who would do experiments where he would, he was so adamant about sharks being a harmless that he would jump into the water with sharks in front of people to prove it. Like he did this, that was his thing. He was known for it. Hmm. They had not, they didn't have reports of shark attacks. Like, like they, they honestly were believed to be very much. Um, like they just animals. stay away from humans yeah they left you alone if you left them alone they left you alone and they didn't come after people like this is unheard of this is unheard of they are absolutely floored okay they thought killer whales sea turtles one newspaper i'd hate to see the sea turtle that did that kind of damage right 
Exactly. There were some crazy theories, but I, we won't get into that. But anyway, one newspaper article put out the expert theory that it was a freak occurrence and the shark was actually trying to attack the dog. Lots of different things that were being said, but ultimately the group just basically reassured the public they didn't need to worry. This was an exception. And if they just stayed inside the netted areas on the beach, they'd be fine. So that's kind of what came out of that. Okay. And then... Four days later. Is this a little boy? Yes. Mm. You know about Well, no, I remember, I remember, I don't remember the second guy, but I remember from that Mark, whatever his name was, he had that Jaws audio show. Yes. And he described, when you started talking about Charles Van, I thought, oh yes, I remember this. And I remember the The little Inside Jaws. Inside Jaws. That's it. Yes. Yeah. In fact, I I referenced one of their sources. Okay. And and the Daily Jaws had something. They had an an article. I pulled some of their pictures, as a matter of fact, and gave them credit for that. Matawan Creek, New Jersey. Matawan Creek is actually a tidal river running from Lake Lefferts and Lake Matawan, if I'm saying that correctly, to the Atlantic Ocean. So this is a place removed from from the ocean and the beach and the shoreline situation that we've been talking about, you know, so far. What happened was on July 12th at around 1.20 p.m., there was a retired sailor named Captain Thomas Cottrell who was returning from fishing. And while he was walking across the town's trolley drawbridge, he looked down and he sees this dark shape in the water that's gray and about eight feet long and it's moving upstream with the incoming tide. And he immediately knows it's a shark. And he looks over and there's some other workmen on the bridge as well. And he can see that they, they saw it too. Like Mm -hmm. he's not the only one. So he runs over and he uses the bridge keeper's phone and he immediately calls the town's barber, John Molson, who's also the chief of police. Okay. (laughs) And he's telling them there's a shark. There's a, you know, there's a shark in our water, in our Creek. And they're laughing at him. Like literally the people in the barber's office and the chief of police are like, you've got to be kidding. Like they think this has to be the biggest joke. Because it's in a river. Why would yes, it be here? Like there's like a lot of fresh water. It is very far removed from the nearest bay, the mouth of the nearest bay. But he's really concerned. He truly believes what he's seen. So he finds a motorboat and he heads towards town and he is got a mission. He's going to be telling all the swimmers, anybody he passes along the way, get out of the water. There's a shark, but he also wants to like get into town to start telling people there too. Because he's probably heard about what just happened, right? You know, they didn't actually say that, but that's a good inference because it was very sensational. Like Uh these shark attacks were big news. But when he reached town, of course, people are still laughing at him. Nobody is believing him. That's another thing. In addition to the freshwater aspect and how far it is from, you know, the mouth of the, you know, the nearest bay, it's a really shallow creek like they don't even feel like that a shark could function in this narrow creek so that was so far inland they definitely are just kind of laughing him off meanwhile he had just almost crossed paths with this group of four boys who were headed down to swim at Mm -hmm. wickoff dock which was the kind of local swimming hole the book said that all of the four boys were either 11 or 12 but again other sources said that one of the boys lester was 10 so i'm not sure but that's the the basic age range. Mm -hmm. It was about 2 p.m. when they stripped off all their clothes and they jumped in. It's another really, really hot day. The boy closest to the shore was Albert O'Hara. And he was the first boy to notice that something was wrong because Mm -hmm. he felt something rough 
brush like against his leg and he looks down and he sees the tail of this huge fish. And right about that same moment that he's registering that, this other boy named Johnny Carton, he saw what he thought looked like a quote, old weather beaten board that was kind of just like drifting along on the surface of the water. Now, Lester Stillwell, he's the boy that we've already referenced who's either 10 or 12. He was in a deeper part of the water. And about that time, he calls out to his friends, you know, watch me, I'm floating. And as they turn to look at Lester, they saw a big splash and they mm. hear him scream mm. and his mm. body begins to jerk violently. Mm. And then as they watch, they actually see the mouth of the shark like close around him and mm. then there's like a struggle. And then the water turns red and Lester disappears from view. Mm. And these boys, you can just imagine the horror Mm -hmm. They they don't even put on their clothes. They run screaming for help naked into town, just terror stricken, yelling shark, shark, a shark's got Lester. It turns out Lester also had epilepsy. And one of the townspeople who's hearing the boys screaming is a 24-year-old man named Watson Fisher, who goes by Stanley. So everybody calls him Stanley. And he and his girlfriend are in his shop. Some people said he was a tailor. Some people, some sources said that he had a dry cleaning shop, but something to do with clothing. They're there together and he he's concerned because he knows Lester still well and he knows that he has this medical condition. Yeah. And the girlfriend reminds him that Captain and Cottrell had just been kind of going around telling everybody there was a shark, you know, that seemed crazy, but, but still now it's kind of in his mind. According to the book, it seems like he's thinking it's more likely that Lester he had a might fit. Have, yeah, that he had a fit. Okay. And regardless, he knew he needed help. And yeah. so he, he needed help immediately. So Stanley heads out. He's going to go down to the creek to help down to the dock. And he sees two of his friends, Red and Arthur in the street. He tells them, you know, come with me. They go down to Wickoff dock. And when they reach the creek, it was still blood red in that area. Uh... It had been about half an hour since Lester had disappeared. They knew it was not, not looking good. The townspeople are gathering on the banks. Now, again, this is another place where some sources conflict because some people say that Stanley and his friends just went directly into the water, whereas the book says they were in a rowboat first. Other sources agree there were some people in a rowboat kind of using long rods to probe the water looking uh -huh. for Lester. Yeah. Not sure if Stanley and his friends did that first, but I'm going to go with that version that Stanley and his friends got in the rowboat first. It wasn't working. They couldn't find anything using the rods. According to the book, they changed into trunks and they went ahead and got into the water. That is so brave. It is. It really is. And I, I have to believe that they probably were still thinking it that might okay. be a shark. I don't yeah. know. But it, regardless, it was. It was very brave. But not long after they were in the water, Arthur felt something rough scrape against his stomach. And when he looked down, he saw that he was bleeding. There was some blood from it. Around this time, the men are ready to give up. And in fact, it's said in the book that Red and Arthur, like they're they're leaving the water. They are ready to, to get out. And Stanley starts to join them. But then he looks over and on the bank, he sees Lester's parents as part of the crowd um, watching and, and he, they're devastated and he knows they want their son's body found because by this time everybody realizes they're recovering a body they know that they're not going to find him alive he decides he'll go back into the water and keep looking for Lester's body because of the parents being there so he dives under again to try to find him and he actually did he actually found Lester's body caught on what seemed to be like a dark log yeah. and he 
pulls Lester to the surface, but as he's now trying to pull Lester toward the bank, suddenly teeth close around his leg. And so Stanley lets go of Lester's body and he's screaming, he got me, the sharks got me. The accounts say that Stanley fought so hard. They said that he was kicking and he was punching and like he is like in this terrible fight with a shark. Twice he's pulled under the water. A deputy sheriff tried to help. He was beating at the shark with like an oar from the rowboat, I'm assuming. Finally, it let go and some people in the bank threw a rope to Stanley and he pulled and it said in the book, they used a motorboat to try to help him as well. So I don't know if they're you know trying to kind of use that to pull him, but regardless, somehow he gets out of the water and a doctor who was there saw there was a huge piece of flesh missing from Stanley's right thigh. Several sources said it was about 10 pounds worth. Ah, Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like a huge wound. And of course, he, so then he's bleeding profusely. Does Stanley so, die too? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Well, so the doctor tied a tourniquet, you know, around his leg to try to stop the blood loss. But the doctor felt that Stanley's condition was so serious that he would not be able to survive a bumpy car ride. So the decision was made to wait for a train to take him to the hospital. And I'm kind of jumping ahead in the timeline to finish out Stanley's story. But ultimately what happened was that the train didn't come for a little while. And then, you know, like it might've been like five o'clock-ish before the train got him, 5.30 before he's at the hospital and taken into the operating room. But they were not able to save him. He died around 6.35 p.m according to the book and they had a quote from the surgeon who was in the room who said that stanley's last words were doc i found the boy on the bottom i got lester away from the shark anyhow i did my duty oh i know isn't that just absolutely heartbreaking but going back into the timeline While Stanley was still alive on the bank fighting for his life, Captain Cottrell got back in his boat and he continued his mission to try to warn other swimmers to get out of the water. And that's going to lead us to the last attack that occurred on this day. But before we do that, why don't I pause for a moment, show you a few pictures, and then we can take a break before we come back to finish the story. Yeah, I need a break. This is heartbreaking. <laughs> it really is, isn't it? So these pictures are a, a little blown up on my laptop, but I think I think you can see pretty well. This is Charles Van Sant. He was, mm. remember, 25 years old when he passed, mm. and he was the first victim. And then the second victim, Charles Bruder, who worked at the hotel, I could not find a picture of him. This is his gravesite. This was really disturbing as well. Apparently, I guess they didn't have a photo, but I think it's a sign of the times, 1916. What I saw repeatedly was where they had made a drawing of him and it was in all the newspapers, but what they drew was him in his swimsuit with his legs missing no yes so i i was not going to include that no but this is in honor of charles bruder who was the second victim and then this is the creek can you i mean imagine this is what madawan creek looks like yeah why you would not picture a shark attack being no so that's where the little boy and stanley were lester and i mean i I don't know if this is the exact site of wickoff yeah 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 yeah, but but that's what it looks like yeah this is the creek and was it the same shark yes that is nuts to me that is just nuts i mean he had to have been why was he so hungry i don't know like okay and and why would he do it because yeah no one had ever heard of anything like this it was craziness 
sweet Stanley. Mm-hmm. This is Lester and there's Stanley. And then before we go to break, I think this is the last picture I'll show you. This was helpful to me. Basically, this shark just, just keeps moved traveling. up the yeah, it just keeps traveling north. It just moved on up and on into Wild. the Isn't that crazy? Absolutely crazy. We're going to stop there. I have a few more pictures I'll show you at the end after we've made it all the way through the story, but I think it's time to take our break. Mm-hmm. If you love Scandal Water and would like to help us keep the tea brewing, simply go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod where you can become a monthly supporter or give a one-time gift. Cheers! Well, we are back from our break and ready to move back into the story. So remember, we'd left off with the shark attack on Lester and Stanley. Yes. And so now it's been about 30 minutes since Stanley came out of the water and we are about half a mile from Wickoff Dock where they were attacked. Okay. And in this particular place along the creek, there were two brothers named Michael and Joseph Dunn who were playing with their 16-year-old friend, Jerry Hurahan. Now they never gave us Michael's age at all. And Joseph was listed as being 12 in the book, but he was listed as 14 in several other sources. So basically we've got three teenagers probably in the creek swimming. But one thing that came up in several sources was the teens did hear some yelling in the distance and it sounded like a warning. They couldn't make out the exact words, but they heard the word shark. Now, I don't know if this was the captain who was yelling or if a right. lot of you know, other people are now joining the mission to get the word out, but somebody had shouted this warning. According to the book, Jerry and Michael climb up the ladder, you know, to get onto the dock and out of the water. But when they turn to look back to find, you know, for Joseph, they see Joseph's head bob under the water like he being hugged. and then suddenly the water turned red oh my gosh the shark what is up with him i know so these boys though these boys they link arms to make themselves kind of like this little human chain and michael you know who's brother to joseph he's actually getting down into the water to grab his brother's hand oh and he somehow manages to like pull and wrestle him away from the shark yeah. Now about this time, two men who were nearby, they've come upon the scene and I'm sure there's a lot of yelling and things. And so they help get Joseph out of the water and onto the bottom rung of the ladder. And then Captain Cottrell does appear in his motorboat mm -hmm. and they put the brothers in the boat with him so that he could take them back towards Wickoff Dock to get help. Yeah. And when they get to that dock, a doctor examines Joseph and decided that he was not as badly hurt as Stanley and that he could be transported in a car. So when Joseph arrived at the hospital, which was about 20 miles away, a reporter asked him about what is it like to be bitten by a shark? And Joseph is quoted as saying, I was about 10 feet from the dock ladder when I looked down and saw something dark. Suddenly I felt a tug like a big pair of scissors pulling at my leg and bringing me under. Mm. I felt as if my leg had gone. I believe it would have swallowed me. To piggyback on that quote, two sources said that Joseph's leg, he told people his leg had actually kind of almost gone down into the shark's mouth. Ooh. So I think that's why he said it was like it, he would have swallowed me. Yeah. He had severe lacerations on his calves. He had cuts in his ankle bones, deep incisions, I think was the word they called it but he survived. I'm wondering if he survived because that shark was so tired from fighting Stanley that he was worn out. 
Who knows? But there's um, and his brother fight. pulling him out. You know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, but the Madawin Borough has a website, and on it they had a little article about the incident. And according to that source, it said Joseph spent fifty nine days in the hospital, and he would have purple scars on his legs and ankles for his entire life. But he was able to walk, and he was able to enjoy a full life. That is wonderful. Yeah, Lester's body was finally recovered it surfaced and was recovered on july 14th and i'm not even going to describe what mm-hmm. his body looked like it was mm-hmm. awful like basically that shark had partially eaten him mm. the book noted that his face was the only thing that was untouched mm. yeah so in terms of the response you can just imagine how sensational this was oh, i yeah. mean it was just beyond, I don't even know what the word would be for how horrific and upsetting this was to everybody. And even more so to the people who witnessed things firsthand or friends and family members of these poor victims, but it caused basically a panic mm-hmm. right after the attacks, people from the Madawan Creek would go down and shoot into the water, trying to kill the shark because they're thinking this shark could still be in their Creek. According to an insider business insider article, quote, New Jersey fishermen, Coast Guard members, and townspeople threw sticks of dynamite into Madawan Creek oh, and dear. used wire nets to try to capture the offending animal. So they're using dynamite and shotguns to try to clear their creek that's going to kill all kinds of fish well yeah and probably a little dangerous to people who might have been around too but i mean i can i can see how they would be panicked yeah yeah all along the coast many communities were putting up fences around their beaches people putting nets in the water all those things an article published july 14th 1916 in the philadelphia inquirer which was again the same day that lester's body was found said that president woodrow Wilson called a cabinet meeting and the White House agreed to give federal aid to quote drive away all the ferocious man-eating sharks which have been making prey of bathers. Okay so at this point do they not realize it's the same shark? I don't know that they think it's the same shark. I, I do believe there's question is it the same one? Is it this this new phenomenon of all these sharks that are doing this? Right. Some people are still saying it's not a shark at all. Mm. So, well, the very next day, July 15th of 1916, the Philadelphia Evening Ledger reported after the shark incident was discussed the previous day at the cabinet meeting in Washington, the same one that we just referenced, that it was decided a ship would be dispatched to cooperate with the Coast Guard and, quote, active warfare against sharks instituted. Wow. It basically turned into a free-for-all, much like you see in the movie Jaws, where people were like, yeah. A 2012 Smithsonian article said that a lot of coastal communities were offering rewards to people who could bring in sharks. They would give so much a head per shark that was killed. All these fishermen were going out. They were bringing in sharks. I mean, it became a rage. One newspaper declared it a new sport. There's all kinds of photos of people standing there, usually men, with sharks that they Mm. have captured. Mm -hmm. There was a huge increase in recreational fishing for sharks. There were fishing tournaments. All these things are going on. But according to that same Smithsonian article, finally, there was a white shark, a great white shark that was caught nearby. And according to all the newspapers of the time, they believed that this was the shark because they said that they cut it open and they found body parts of two of the victims from Madawan Creek. And so this article said the shark itself was put on display in somebody's 
shop in New York, and this is their words, and yielded a nice dividend of money for the owner who charged so much per head to see it. That's gross. So the man who was given credit for actually capturing the shark was a man named Michael Schleiser. And we do have a picture I'm going to show you of him in a minute, posing with the great white shark that he caught on July 14th, 1916. The article and the picture were featured in the Bronx Home News. And mm. not only because of finding flesh or parts of the victims inside it, like that was one thing that led people to believe, yes, this is the shark, but also the attack stopped. Like there were no more attacks. That would after. do it too. Yeah. Yeah. On the flip side, even to this day, there are some people who question, was it really really a great white shark in the water of that creek. Um, what did they think that it was? Well, let me share this. According to George Burgess, who is a former director of the Florida Program for Shark Research and a curator for the International Shark Attack File, uh-huh. he told Business Insider that the 1916 attacks were the only one of two times in recorded history that a single shark perpetuated multiple attacks on humans. So people question it because twice in history, right? This is so unusual. Typically sharks avoid humans. And a lot of times they say when there are the rare cases in which the sharks attack a swimmer, they say it's usually an accident or a hit and run, or it's mistaken the human for something else, like another animal. So that's one of the reasons why they question it. However, he said, this George Burgess fella had a quote that said, Animal populations, much like humans, sometimes have deranged individuals. Now, to answer your question, some people argue that it had to be a bull shark that was in the Mm. creek because bull sharks are known to inhabit fresh, but, you know, brackish waters, whereas great whites don't normally, you know, but that same expert, George Burgess, he says the evidence does point to a young great white. I saw where it gave an explanation of what that program, that Florida program for shark research, what it does. And they do a lot of research and investigation. They sounded like they knew their stuff. And it seemed like he's convinced it really was a great white. And it was this one that did it all. Almost like a, almost like a serial killer in a person. It's like a serial killer of a shark. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Except that sadly, serial killers are pretty common in our society where it sounds like this is incredibly, incredibly rare. Because they said it was, because they said it is like people, you have a deranged individual. So they have this deranged shark that's just going around chomping people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we do our armchair, why don't I quickly catch you up on pictures and then then we'll chat. So here are a few more photos picking up where we left off. This was in the newspaper at that time frame. This was a picture of somebody obviously shooting into the creek after the shark attacks. Man. And then here we have one of the many, many photos you could find that were in the newspapers or being circulated at that time of people bringing in sharks because they were just after them. I mean, it was a huge... That doesn't look like a shark that killed all those people, though. Yeah. Well, according to the reports here... Oh, actually, this is not it yet. This is another one. If you can see the title, it says Man-Eating Shark of Variety, Uh, which infests Atlantic. And here's another group of men standing over a shark that's been killed. mm -hmm. Like, it was a thing. That also reminds me of Jaws. Yes, 100%. This is the one that they think... That looks like Jaws. Isn't it? It's very scary looking. Whoo-wee. 
Yeah. And this, it's very grainy, I know, but that's the man, Michael Schleiser, him. that they think actually caught him. They think that's another picture of that same shark. That's that's it. That's who they believe did it all. Wow. He doesn't look as big as I thought it was going to. Yeah. What well, did say a young great white? That it was. Yeah. An adolescent. Some thought it might be. This is Stanley's grave. Mm. And you can see that he's still regarded as a hero after all this time. In fact, I saw that it's not like they, I don't think they try to sensationalize it. I think it's kind of an honoring thing that that community will sometimes commemorate, you know, the anniversary of those attacks. And it's more from that angle of honoring these people yeah. who were lost and Stanley for what he did to try to save Lester. I like that they have his picture right there. Mm -hmm. And reportedly his grave is, is close to Lester's. It's almost like he's kind of still watching over him. Yeah. Watching over him, looking out for him. And they did put up a little memorial on that site that talks about the Madawan shark attacks that occurred in that area. So that's what's the one in the middle. What does that say? If that's just a picture of it, I can't see. I cannot even tell. I'm sorry. That's okay. I think that's just a picture of the Creek. Maybe that looks like it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is just one more picture of how they commemorate and honor them when they do their annual honestly i'm not sure if it's an annual thing but they recently hit like one of the big anniversaries and yeah so this a is milestone maybe yeah. like in 2016 it would have been the hundred yeah, I, I believe you could be right i think that's what it was and i believe that's my last photo let me double yes that's it hmm. Armchair psychologist. So for our armchair, Ashley, if you have other thoughts, I'd love to hear them. But so what I kept seeing across source after source was almost how unfair and tragic it is that sharks have become so reviled and so feared and have become like public enemy number one, really because of two sensational things. I mean, other things as well, I'm sure, but primarily mm -hmm. these 1916 shark attacks and then Jaws. the Jaws phenomenon. And they were, they were saying so many of the sources were saying they really will leave you alone. Like, yes, they look scary and certainly they can do a lot of brutal damage if they get hold of you. But for the most part, these are just creatures who will leave you alone if you leave them alone. And it's really mm -hmm. a bit unfair what we've done to them. Mm -hmm. So I thought I would ask you that and then we can talk about anything else that you find interesting. Gosh, I mean, I think that the they've kept me out of the water, you know, mm -hmm. it keeps me out of the water. It's better to be safe than sorry. Most 99% of them could be nice, but I just don't want to take that chance to run into the 1% that isn't. It right. just, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. Obviously, this was one shark that was completely deranged. Who knows if it had some kind of, I don't know, did sharks get rabies or just something like that? That just, it. what fascinates me is how it just kept going. And mm -hmm. you would think that something, maybe I'm coming from the Jurassic Park thought where once the T-Rex feeds, it's not hungry again for a while. But this shark was just attacking and attacking and attacking. And why? What is right. it? what's its purpose? It, it just seemed nuts to me. Right. So I don't, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but those are my impressions of what is up with this one particular shark that's mm -hmm. causing it to do this. And then to divert into a Creek, right. Fresh water. Right. It, it yeah. just sounds like something that was fr a freak of nature, but was scary enough that it has done over a hundred years worth of legacy damage. Yes. And I mean, I'm the same way. I have been afraid of sharks ever since I saw Jaws. And this story did nothing to alleviate that. <laughs> Not going to help no it at all. How many people tell me it's rare uh -huh. because you're right. It may be really rare, but if it happens to you, it's going to be horrific. Yeah. 
horrific. I will say that I, have you ever petted a shark? Have you ever gotten the chance to do that? No, you have? I have. I went to an aquarium in Northern Kentucky and they had a shark exhibit. Well, I mean, they're 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 not but you could they would say take two fingers and you can dip it in and they would you could run it across the top of their body and when you described one of the victims said that it felt very rough Mm -hmm. they feel like light sandpaper that's what their skin feels like to me at least the ones that i that i got a chance to pet and it was it felt like sandpaper i mean you're you're not in the water with them obviously they're in a little tank and as they go by they say you can take your two fingers and just just do that but they were small were you afraid to put your fingers in there no not once they're once their mouths were gone no their mouth okay. goes past you like say this is the mouth and it goes past and you you do that mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it was fascinating yeah i think i will always be afraid of sharks but i think the one thing that occurs to me is i don't think it's fair that we just go hunt them that we make mm-hmm. them extinct that we just kind of go after them and turn them into sport necessarily i mean i know I they definitely try to find the one that did all that stuff but after oh, that for sure no I, i'm just talking like in general like yeah. today like yeah, just yeah. today if, if people are just like I just want to go kill a shark just Mm-mm. to kill a shark. I mean, I know that there are sports and people do hunt things and that, and I, that's a separate thing, but I hate the thought of everybody reviling them to the point of wanting to wipe them out. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think that's fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I well, I did see the parallels the whole time I was doing this. I mean, if Peter Benchley was unaware of those shark attacks, then some, he must've had other personal experiences. I don't know. Sharks. It reminds me of the whole Maverick question we've been touching upon the last few years where they wrote that article and then the sequel came out and they're like, there's a lot of similarities, but I don't know. I'm not calling Peter Benchley a liar. I'm just wondering why he didn't want to acknowledge. Maybe it's something to do with copyright. Maybe it was if I say this is similar I'm liable I I don't know I don't know but it just makes me wonder what was his reason for saying because it is so similar and if it's not then why not just make it completely different and make it up perhaps I know he grew up by the ocean so Mm -hmm. maybe other stories had filtered to him you know maybe there were some other experiences people had and I'm gonna guess that shark attacks there are a lot of similarities right in in what they do to people Mm -hmm. so maybe he heard some other stories but But still it's the it's the dog it's the little boy it's the bobbing it's just it's so much of it yeah the whole time I was was researching this I just I couldn't get jaws out of my mind Mm -hmm. yeah well I thought that was fascinating I'm glad Mm -hmm. that after more than a year we had a chance to go back and pull back the curtain and share the story of what we feel sure was inspirational for the movie if not the book that's right you grossed me out Well done. (laughs) I would like to say a cheers to, I mean, I feel so sorry for the victims and they were so valiant, but I have to say a cheers to the people who risked their lives to jump in and help. Yeah. When, when viewing and seeing something so terrifying to go ahead and jump in there and run toward danger. Yes. Cheers to those people. Absolutely. Cheers to them. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can 
join the Scandal Water community through our Scandal Water Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandal Water Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandal Water theme and other music, Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the hosts during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.